We are in our series on uh, Habakkuk, and it's How Long, Lord? And yeah, this has been a pretty amazing series so far. This is a, a minor prophet, minor in his size, not his influence. And the past few weeks, we've been talking and learning more about Habakkuk's life and his message and what was going on. And today, as I went through this message, I, I could not shake a commercial that I remember seeing when I was a kid in the 1970s and the 1980s here in the U.S. And it was a commercial about E.F. Hutton. Does anyone ever recall that? It was around that time. Some of you may not, that might be younger, kids may not know, or if you're from a different country, you may not know this. But there was this commercial where people would be speaking, and it would be in a classroom, or it would be in a a restaurant, or a business, or on a plane. And people would talk about E.F. Hutton, who is like a a stock firm, stock, uh, you know, dealing with finances and stocks and things like that. And a person would be conversing, and they'd say, well, E.F. Hutton says, and as soon as that, that tagline went, everyone went quiet, and they would lean in to, to hear what was being said. And it was quiet. And the idea was, is when e, and they had the, this tagline, when E.F. Hutton speaks, everyone listens. And, and, and that was the idea, is because this guy was so, or this firm was so great on helping you with your finances. Now, let's take that principle and apply it to the Word of God. When God speaks... What do you do? Do you listen? Do we listen to what he says? I think a hard, sometimes we have a hard time listening. We get just so distracted, like my kids, when they're on one of the cell phones and they're playing a game and you say their name and they don't respond and you say their name again and they don't respond and you have to like almost get up to them and speak to them because they're so focused or riveted on it that they can't hear. Some of us are so riveted and focused on our own lives that we can't hear God when he speaks to us. So today I would encourage you, encourage us all, as we jump within this passage, and, and let me just set the stage for a moment uh, to see why we need to listen here. Habakkuk had asked God for a response. He couldn't understand why God had decreed judgment on Israel and how he was going to use these, uh, the Chaldeans, who were considerably more wicked uh, to Habakkuk than, than the Israelites had been, how he could use this wicked nation to judge Israel. It really bothered him because it seemed like the Chaldeans were escaping judgment themselves. And it bothered Habakkuk's understanding of God's sovereignty. It didn't make sense to what he understood about God's nature and his person and his ways. And so he asked God, why is this happening? What is going on? And he lays his complaint before God, and he generous, I mean, genuinely wanted to understand. As we learned last week, there is a, a doubt or, or a, a time where we go to God and we complain because it doesn't make sense to what we understand about God because we have faith that's seeking to understand or we want to believe to understand. And then there's another kind that is unbelief that seeks to undermine, as we saw within Israel's history, that they continually complained uh, of God and His ways, because they, not because they wanted to believe or understand, because they wanted to find excuses to disbelieve and turn away. But here today, we are receiving God's response, and Habakkuk is, is waiting for God's response. Now let me ask you, what are you waiting for God to respond to you on right now? What is it? You're waiting for God to intercede in your life. Is it in your finances? Perhaps your marriage, engagement? Maybe you're waiting for that uh, Mr. Right or Miss Right to come along. 
Maybe you're dealing with a health issue and you're wondering if there's ever going to be any freedom from it. Perhaps you're wondering what's going on in your job or maybe you're waiting for a job or wondering why or how you are suffering in the situation that you are and you've laid your complaint genuinely in faith, laid it before God and waiting for him to respond. And as you wait for that response, I want want us all to really answer in the truth of our own heart, are we willing to listen if God tells us something different than we want to hear. We say that we're open to what God has. But oftentimes when we say that, it's because we believe that God is going to speak to us in the way that we want. But God is not beholden to us. He is free to speak in his own way. The question is, are we willing to listen and obey when he shows us? Before we proceed any further, let's take a moment to pray and invite God by His Holy Spirit to expose the idols of our heart and show us the truth of who He is that we might embrace Him and acknowledge Him for all of who He is. Let's pray. Almighty God. Lord, we long for you. We thirst for you like a deer pants for the water. So our souls pant for you. Lord, oftentimes we have felt like we are in the desert with no water. And remind us, Lord, that you are our oasis. That you are our sustainer. That you are our God. Lord, show us that you are the great God, but be small enough to hear our prayer, to answer us, to condescend to your servants, that we might hear from you. Almighty God, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, you who are exalted above every power, every thought, every ideal, every government, and every system. You who are the creator of all men and women and have given us the breath of life. You, O God, who have sent your Son because you saw us in our sin and our helplessness and hopelessness, sent him to die to give us hope, to give us life, to defeat the evil one, to trample the evil one under your foot. Oh, Lord our God, we ask you to speak to us because you are the God of truth. And you are not the God that is removed from our life and our circumstances, but is intimately familiar with who we are and all that makes us tick and all of our fears, all of our failures, all of our ambitions, all of our struggles. You know every single part of who we are. And yet you love us. And we know that you've not left us without witness, but you have given us your word, alive by your spirit, to speak to our hearts of the truth of who you are and how we are to live and move and have our being. So, Lord, glorify your name in our midst today and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.
So, let's jump right in to our text today. As I said before, Habakkuk had already asked God a question. How could God use a nation more wicked than Israel to be God's rod of punishment? And last week, we ended with Habakkuk climbing up to the watchtower to wait for God to answer. And as we saw that the watchman of an ancient city uh, had a very important and was a very important and strategic person whose responsibility was to see a coming army and then warn the people and prepare them uh, for battle so that they could make the right uh, response. And now, though, the response that he was waiting for comes in verse 2. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. He begins with a command to Habakkuk to write down what he's about to say. And as we look at this, God's word to Habakkuk creates, uh, carries the same principle for us in our time. See, when God speaks, we are to trust in his words. He's saying that I want you to trust what I'm about to say. I want you to write this down, and I want you to understand that this is a foundational and bedrock truth that is for you and all who come after you. Now, the difficulty that we have is that we have a hard time trusting God. Habakkuk is called to trust. God wanted his word to be remembered and passed on to others. What he has said, he will do. And if he warns us about sin, we can be sure that there will be consequences for ignoring his warning. But if he makes us a promise, we can also be sure that he's going to fulfill it. He doesn't know how to fail. Now, he commands him to write the commands down, these words down on tablets. And the tablets could have been wood or stone, similar to the Ten Commandments. Uh, I've got to travel within Egypt and and, uh, going back into... um, uh, Israel, and I've seen how they uh, gone to different displays where they would talk about how different things had been recorded. I've, I've visited uh, different museums, and they have stones where different things had been recorded for posterity and have passed down to the generations so that they can be read and understood by future generations. And what he's saying here is that he wants him to write large and legible enough so it'd be plain for everybody, and plain for everyone. In other words, he wants us all to understand it. And we can trust his words and have to understand that he wants his words to be plain enough for us to understand. Plain for us to understand. See, although God is transcendent and is far above, uh, far beyond our ability to understand, he stoops to speak and communicate with us in ways that we can understand. God isn't trying to be mysterious for mysterious sake. Sure, there are things within his word that are beyond our ability, that are beyond our ability to comprehend, which is a reminder to each one of us that God cannot be controlled and that He is greater than us. We have to be reminded of all of that. But here, it's His way of reminding us that He is God and that we are not. But yet, He condescends, brings it down, and makes His word plain enough for us to understand. 
See, this is why we advocate and why we talk here at Village Bible Church for Bible translation. We want to get the Word of God in, in, in people's uh, vernacular and their heart language that they can apply it. We want the, everyone to be able to read and apply the Word of God to their lives. God doesn't require us to learn a different language so that we can understand His words. He seeks to communicate to every single people group and language all over the world. He is not limited He wants to explain to everyone and show the truth of who he is and go into that culture and then have the word of God translated into their language so that they can understand the truth of who God is. God seeks to make his truth plain enough for us to understand that children can understand it. Now, there are some things within the word of God, prophecies and truths and principles that are way out there, but they're also to humble us and cause us to trust in who he is is. But see, God does condescend, and I'm going to use that term, meaning that he stoops down, almost like a parent, to communicate to a child who he is. See, that's the thing that we we don't think, we don't understand. Sometimes we think that God can only communicate in smoke and mirrors and in light shows and, and the big show. And as we were praying before our service today, God has a tendency to really speak to us in the still, small whisper. It's not in the show. It's not always in the excitement. In the book of 1 Kings, when Elijah goes to meet with God, there is this huge storm, and it says God wasn't in the storm. And then a huge earthquake, and God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was a still, small whisper. And that's when he stepped out to speak with God. See, we want him to be in the big show. We want to be in the crowds. But God makes himself plain enough for all of us. You know, one of the scriptures that I remember hearing about for the first time uh, when I was in school was from the book of Isaiah that talked about the person of Jesus and his future coming. And this is what we read about him in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 2. And it's a prophecy of what Jesus would be like, the Messiah, the Mashiach. For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no, and this is the part I want you to focus on, he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. See, in our world today, especially when we look at leaders, we want the powerful, powerful looking leader, the person who acts like a leader, right? Even when we, when we vote for presidents, we want to say which one looks most presidential. You're not going to see, I I have a hard time, in our media generation seeing a guy like William Howard Taft or Grover Cleveland being president again. These are very large people. Now, it's because of our media-sensitive world. We want someone that looks and sounds presidential. They look the part, right? Now, Jesus comes along, and he's not like that. He doesn't have this charismatic personality. He's not an amazing-looking guy. He doesn't have these ripped muscles and really bold and and this beautiful-looking guy that shows up. It says that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He looked like us. He interacted with us. He came alongside of us. You, You wouldn't know him if he walked up to you. You wouldn't go, this is the Messiah of the world. This is Who's this guy? Some people you look in and they're like, wow, they're huge. Look how big they are. Look how, man, they must be someone of importance. When Jesus comes in, he looks just like everyone else. Because God wants to make things plain to us and communicate himself to us. And that's what he's saying. I want you to write this vision down. I want to make it plain that everyone can understand what I am trying to say. But he says something else within the text. He says, 
Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Now, to make it plain on tablets, as I said before, it could be on stone or wood. Uh, The idea was that it was being communicated, and not just plain, but it would be preserved. Preserved. See, God wants his word to be preserved, to be remembered, to be communicated. As I said earlier, my daughter and I went to the National Archives Museum, which is a collection of those documents, of videos, sounds of who makes, what makes this country this country, so that it can be passed on to other generations. But the, the highlight of that entire uh, National Archive is the Declaration of Independence which is kept in this case. If you've ever seen National Treasure, you know what I'm talking about. But it's, it has a, a light that's not too bright in order not to cause it to fade because it's very faded. But, I mean, the temperature is regulated. Everything is regulated because they want to preserve it on for other generations to know the foundation of who we are in this country and the history that all of those where you've been born here or come to be a part of this land are a part of. And he wanted to preserve, to pass it on to the next generation. I like to call this the discipline of remembrance. Throughout the scripture, we are told again and again and again, not always new and exciting truths, but to remember what God has done. Here's a reminder. Here's a ceremony that commemorates what God has done, just like what we did within the Lord's Supper. It's so that we would remember, because we forget Even after September 11th occurred, there were bumper stickers that came out and it said, never forget, don't forget, remind you of what it is that God has done. And you see it throughout the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant had the Ten Commandments placed within it. It also had other objects that showed and displayed God's glory, such as Aaron's staff that had butted when his leadership was being questioned and God was showing that he was an authority. He was a leader. And it was to remind them. And then manna, how God had preserved them when they were in the wilderness, was placed in the Ark of the Covenant so that they would continually be reminded Or even after the nation of Israel crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, God had commanded them to set up stones of remembrance that would always remind them of where they had come from and what they had done. And we have this within our own lives, in our own cultures, in our own families, these ways that we preserve and remember that which is important to us. But here God is saying, I want my words to be written down on tablets to be preserved, not just for you, but will be a testimony to the coming generations that I want you to teach to others and reveal to other people to pass it on. This is a principle throughout the scriptures. Just as God spoke to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9, he wanted this truth to not just be preserved, but passed on to the next generation. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
those who are Jewish still do this to this day. If they are a practicing Jew, they take what's called a mezuzah and they screw it into the doorframe of their homes, which has the law written upon it. And as a reminder to them, I took this very, very literally, but the idea it carries is, is that you, you care so much about God that it overflows and you speak and teach it to the next generation when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, when you're coming home and when you're going out. When you're traveling, every part of your life should overflow with the truth of who God is and you're to pass it along to the next generation. I don't know about you, but it, it really makes me pause when I think that this great theological statement, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, this was the rallying cry. This was the theme, the motto for all of this, the nation of Israel. This was their, their, their foundational truth is immediately accompanied by, and you shall teach them to your children. I want it to be preserved. I want it to be passed on. Which is why we read, even in the book of John, why John wrote his book of the Bible in John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, why did God make his words plain for us? Why did he want them to be preserved for us for all time? Not just in Habakkuk's time, but in our era. Just as John said, so that they may be put into action. See, God doesn't want you just to hear his word. He wants you to do it. Ezra is a great example of this, who made up his mind to to teach the law of the Lord and to do it. To perform it. See, there have been theologians that have said the Bible is really one big giant script called the drama of redemption. And that God invites you onto the stage of life to participate within the drama of redemption, of telling other people about it. That as soon as you are saved, you're brought onto the stage. And the whole world is, is going to see you. That you, you now become salt and light and he is inviting you to participate in this divine drama of redemption to reach the entire world for the glory of his name. He wants us to put it into action. That's why in verse 2 of Habakkuk chapter 2, it says, so that he may run who reads it. It's a metaphor for how one lives. He wants his word to be put into action, which in other means means obeyed. He wants us to live by the truth of his word not paying lip service, but obeying the truths and principles of God's word as to display his greatness by our obedience, that he is God and for our own joy. Now remember in context of this passage, God is prepping Habakkuk to know his response to the hated Chaldeans whom he was using to be his rod for Israel's punishment. Habakkuk wanted to know how God could use them and how they could escape judgment when they were worse than Israel. And God responded that he was going to judge them. Look at verse 3. For still the vision waits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. See, the vision waits until the appointed time. The term hastens to the end. It's like a stone that had come up and began to roll down, that it's going to keep going. It's like when I was a kid or you're a teenager and you've ever been to Six Flags and you get on a roller coaster and you're going up... And you know as soon as it gets up, it's going down. <laughs> and that's what he's saying. Don't wait, just wait for it. Wait for it. And he's going up. 
And it's going to go down. It's saying it's going to happen. It's going to happen in God's appointed time. In other words, that means and requires us to be patient and to exercise patience. This is one thing we are terrible at in our world today. God does not operate on our timetable, but he does operate. I'm reminded of so many principles of God's word whereby patience is required, but we think that if God doesn't act immediately, then he's not responding at all, and he's not real. That's not the case. For example, I've seen these principles played out over several different lives. In Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, we read this. Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. How many of us in our lives have sinned thinking that we'd get away with it? And then it sticks in the back of your mind. Years have gone by. Some of you are carrying conviction that's 50, 60, 70 years that it's gone on. You've been imprisoned by your guilt, your shame. Because you know that it's going to be exposed. You believe the truth of this. You who are younger, you don't think a lot about it when you're young. You get older, you start to think about it more. Don't tempt God. Your sin will find you out. And here, here's, the, here's the, the, the principle that I want you to really understand. It's better to confess it now and get it out than deal with it. But if you wait and try to hide it when it does come out, your shame will be multiplied. And not only will you be hurt, but those around you will be hurt. It's better to deal with it now, to confess it, to get it out there, to to talk and agree with God. Because God says if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just. And he will do what? Forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But people that try to hide it and preserve it, when it does come out, you're going to be made a fool. People are going to mock you. You're going to be shamed. And you're going to feel the guilt and all of it in its fullness because you try to hide it away. You think you're smarter than everyone else and you think you're going to get away with it. You are not above God's law. None of us are. None of us are. It will come out eventually, this year, next year, in 10 years. It's going to eat you away. But trust that God will, if you are honest before him, you are genuinely broken and you admit it, God is going to give you grace. He's going to battle in your favor. He might remove even some of the consequences or give you the grace to bear up underneath it because you're testifying that he is right and that you are admitting your own wrong. Do not hold on to it. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 2 through 3, and I remember sitting in church reading this when I was a kid and I was so scared I closed the Bible. This is what he says. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will, be, that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. That freaked me out. God's not going to let us get by with it. God's nature will not allow sin to go unpunished. Our concept of time is different than his. A thousand years to us is like one day to him. We need to be patient for God to act whether that is waiting for him to provide a spouse, save a child, to meet our need, he will act. 
But if you're holding on to your sin, then understand that he is being patient with us, not willing us or wanting us to be destroyed. As 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says very, very clearly, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. He's patient toward us. Not so that we can stay in our sin, but that we will repent of it. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Because there will come a point in time where he will no long, there will no longer be that opportunity. And then we're stuck forever. Don't presume upon God's goodness. Repent now. Confess your sin. Turn from it and receive forgiveness. If we try to hide it, he will make it known. And, uh, and we, quite possibly, will bear, the, the, and our families will bear our shame. Now, if you're one of those who are waiting for God to act in the world, whether it's fulfilling a promise for good or to judge the wicked, no one understand it, this. His timing is perfect. His timing is perfect. He will never be early. He will never be late. His timing has always been and will always be perfect. The problem that we have is that we allow circumstance to cloud our judgment and fear then takes over. We have to be patient and wait. Like Elijah waited in prayer for God to send rain. Seven times he sent his servant to look out over a cliff to see if rain approached. Six times the servant came back with a negative report and said there was nothing. But the seventh time he saw a small cloud and that cloud became a raging storm. He had to wait. Now, allow me for a moment to add an addendum to this. God's timing is perfect, but we have a tendency to act on our own behalf when he doesn't respond in the way or at the moment we believe he should. Let me repeat that. God's timing is perfect, but we have a tendency to act on our own behalf when he doesn't respond in the way or at the moment we believe he should. Now, it's not that he doesn't act at the appropriate time. It's when we believe he should respond. And here's my question. If God tarries, will you wait? And how long will you wait? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the victims of a malicious smear campaign meant to get them killed by jealous servants of King Nebuchadnezzar. And these servants tricked King Nebuchadnezzar into writing a law that directed anyone to be killed should they fail to worship him at uh, the proper cue at a certain time. And of course, they couldn't do that because they were followers of the one true God. And when the time came, they didn't bow down as everyone else did. So the officials came to the king and informed him of their insolence and disobedience. Infuriated, he then had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego brought before him and confronted them to discover whether or not, excuse me, the accusations were true. And they responded with this in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But... If not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that because that really helps us to understand how God works. It illustrates a great principle here. They're saying to this king, 
God is able to do this. And he will deliver us. He's going to deliver us. And can you imagine when the king says, he gets so infuriated by their answer that he has the furnace heated up seven times normal, so much so, and he has it, his servants throw these guys in, the strongest guys that he has, and they die because of how hot it is. They're killed throwing these guys in. And then when he sees these guys go in, he's waiting to see them cry out in agony and says he sees them stand up, and instead of seeing three, he sees four walking around. Now, there's a principle here. That sometimes we wait for God to keep us from the fire. But we have to understand that if we are find ourselves in the fire, that he'll be in the fire with us. That he'll be with us. Because see, we don't think that, we think, God, I can't go through this. I can't go through this. God says, yes, I, yes you can. I'm going to be here. We say, God, deliver me. You promised you would deliver me. And you find yourself in it going, you must not be here with me. And he's saying, hello, I'm right here with you. See, many of us, we, we, we don't understand that. His timing is perfect. He is there in ways that we cannot begin to understand. Now, there's a transition in verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. He's laying this out as a time for us to consider it. In other words, he's putting a mirror up. He's giving a contrast between two different people. And we find ourselves in these two different people. And it's meant for us to consider our ways to determine which person we are. So here's the second point. We have to consider our ways. When God speaks to us, we have to consider our ways. How are we behaving? And he is laying out and he's saying, this is how the Chaldeans are living, the wicked. This is what a characteristic of who they are. But this is how my servants are to live and behave and act. He says, consider your ways. Which one are you? And he says, behold, his soul is puffed up. The word means here it's filled up, bloated or swelling. It carries the idea of arrogance and pride. And the idea is self-sufficiency. See, this person is confident in their own ability to do and to make their own destiny. And that means here we can live as self-sufficient. That's what he's saying. Do you want to be self-sufficient? But it leads to a place. It says that it is not upright within him. The idea here is that it's completely crooked. The person who is completely self-sufficient, who doesn't need God, becomes crooked. His belief that he is the source of his own good is a source of pride and prevents him from seeing the good or righteousness that he sees or needs outside of himself. In other words, the proud cannot be upright in the way God requires, which leads to being jacked up. A little of my own terminology there. When you are following and living a self-sufficient life, it leads to a person whose life is completely jacked up in the sight of God. I Meaning it's messed up. It is really messed up. It's crooked. It's distorted in the way that God wants it to be. They might look great on the outside, but inwardly that they are completely wicked and they, are, they, have, they do not have the righteousness that God requires. And we have to be very careful of that because our pride can be our destruction. The greatest part of who we are can destroy us. There was a story that came out, and uh, um, uh, it's a terrible story. I don't know if you've heard of this movement called Trash the Dress. Anyone heard that? So these ladies that are, uh, they get married, they, after they get married, they destroy their wedding dress. And so they take pictures or go to these photo shoots where they show them jumping in the water and jumping around, and their wedding dresses and the, and the dresses are ruined. 
Well, this one woman, after she had been married, this was right outside of Montreal, Canada, uh, I think it was two weeks after she was married, she scheduled a trash the dress photo shoot with the photographer. And so she's with a photographer taking photos right along this Ora'u River, I think that's the name of it. And uh, she says, well, I'm going to wait out into the water. And when I wait out into the water, then uh, they can get more photos of me. And she starts waiting out in the water. The current carries her a little bit. But this dress now is saturated and starts to pull her under. Then she drowns. The dress weighed 100, over 100 pounds and couldn't keep her. So she was proud in her dress what had happened. In this moment, she's out there in the water, so proud of it, becomes the means by which she has drowned. See, our pride that we are so great about will be the means of our own destruction. We think it's great and wonderful and want to display our pride to the world, but it becomes the mean of our own condemnation. And we have to guard against that self-sufficiency. That's the contrast. Instead, we need to be radically Savior-focused. Have a radical Savior focus. See, who are the righteous And if we are to have faith, what is the faith in? In other words, what's the object of that faith? I have faith, but in what? The Bible talks a great deal about faith, which is believing God. God wants us to believe in him. Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. As we read in Romans chapter 4, verse 4 through 8, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Salvation comes from believing in God's testimony about the world which is supremely exhibited, seen, displayed in Christ, who is the very Word of God. We read this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 9 through 12. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. How do we become righteous? Simple. By believing in his son, Jesus Christ. It is only through him that we can have any righteousness whatsoever. There is no amount of work we can do to get right with God, no sacrifice that will make us good in God's sight. We will never be good enough in God's sight. We can't do anything to make ourselves right in the sight of God except to believe in the one who has already come, Jesus. This verse is, not, is, is actually one of the most amazing verses in all of Scripture, and it's the verse that Paul quoted in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, when we are Savior-focused, all of that is to say that believing in Jesus leads to being justified by faith alone. Where is your faith? It means declared righteous in the sight of God. That God takes what Christ did on the cross 
and he had no sin, you had nothing but sin, and he takes your sin and transfers to him and takes his righteousness and gives it to you because of what he did on the cross, supremely showed the very righteousness of God. And he, and he is the only one who did what is completely righteous. And he gave us his righteousness. And that we can partake of that and are declared righteous in the sight of God by believing in what he has done, not by any amount of work on our part. It cannot be in what we can do or what we have done or what we will do. It must and can only be in Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. Believe in that and God will make you righteous. He will transform your life. I'm going to go through these last points rather quickly. I want to take a moment to focus on more uh, verse 5. Moreover, some believe this to be a transitional verse, uh, actually between the next section, uh, verse 2 through 4, and then 6 through 20. It says, moreover, wine is a traitor. Actually, some of the earliest manuscripts say wealth is a traitor. Both can be something that we can depend on for strength, and both can turn on us. An arrogant man who is never at rest, his greed is as wide as Sheol, which is the abode of the dead. And like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Now, uh, let me put it this way. What this is is a warning for us, and we have to heed his warning. It's a warning, um, and it's a warning that is going to pass. Um, when I purchased our home, we had a home inspector went through the home, and he gave us all these warnings about things that were going to go out in our house or possibly go out and need to be replaced. One was the garage door opener. Another was the hot water heater. He said, eventually, they're going to need to be replaced. I'm just giving you a warning. And, of course, most of us would go, eh, it'll need to be replaced sometime. I'll get by for a while. So first night in our, our, our new home, so excited, all the boxes were moved in, got ready for bed, tired of moving all day, pressed the garage door, happy to have a garage door, and then the garage door starts to close, and I make my way off to bed, get up the next morning, open up the door to the garage, and see that when I pressed the garage door, it went, and it's hanging there. And so when the, the guy said I was going to need a garage door, I didn't think he meant the very first day. And then he said my hot water was going to go out, hot water heater, and that went out the first week. Now, when God gives us a warning, this isn't a warning that is something that might happen. This is something that will happen if we do not do what he tells us to do. We have to heed his warning. And this warning is for us to guard, first of all, against arrogance. He mentions that wine or wealth is a traitor, meaning that it offers to give power, but it can betray it offers security. It can betray and destroy, giving us a false sense of confidence. It gives the arrogant man courage, but it only encourages him to continue on in his arrogance. It refers to this arrogant man who is never at rest. He continually is going on. And then it says in verse 5, uh, the next part, his greed is as wide as Sheol, and like death he never has enough. In other words, he, there is no limit to his greed. He wants more and more and more. He has a selfish ambition. And we have to guard against that. And now he's personifying the Chaldeans, saying this is what leads to their downfall. And it's a warning for us so that we don't follow in their ways. We have to guard against arrogance and selfish ambition. Now notice what happens to us if we keep going on in our arrogance and ambition. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. He's so focused on getting that he goes after other people and treats other people as uh, their, his own possession. And it's saying here that what we do is we end up hurting and harming those around us. When we continue on failing to heed the voice of God 
And we are not just going to hurt ourselves and be lost in our own arrogance and our own ambition. We're going to hurt those around us. And the only cure that we have for any of this is to do an about face. It's a military term. The idea is completely turning around away from the life that we were living. We have to do an about face to turn in the opposite direction, to turn from our self-sufficiency to understanding the Savior, being Savior-focused, turning from our arrogance and ambition and falling before God's mercy, to turn from sin and not holding on to it any longer, but doing what God has called us and commanded us to do. When E.F. Hutton spoke, people listen. God spoke to Habakkuk, and he's speaking to us. Will we listen? Let's close in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, the greatness of your power, your transcendence, and the mystery of how you work, and yet still make it plain that even a child can understand, is beyond my ability to fathom. I stand in awe at your word unto us, that it can transcend to every culture, every people, every tribe, and speak through every language. Lord, your word is timeless. And that you offer supremely the, the, the supreme expression of your love to us, not just through your word, but for the, through the divine word, the very logos of God, which is Christ Jesus. And Lord, help us to see Habakkuk through the lens of Christ's coming to understand how your mercy is given unto us through Christ and that you do not desire us to continue on in our sin, but to repent of it, to hear your word when you speak to us. And Lord, your word does speak to us in all of our situations, in all of our circumstances, calling every single one of us to listen and obey. Just as our Lord Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Lord, may our hearts and our ears be open to receive the truth of your word that we might obey it by believing in the one that you have sent, by trusting in him. And for those who have trusted in him, that they might keep an eternal vigilance of fighting against sin and pressing on to the kingdom of God, seeing the full expression of your kingdom, telling other people about who you are and what it means to be a follower of you. May your, the joy of knowing you overflow from our hearts. May our lives be completely pure. May you transform us in the most secret places of our souls. And we ask, Lord, that you save, that you give hope, that you give peace, and you give purpose. And may it be said of us that when you speak, that we listen and obey. For the glory of your name and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.